scars in our life, don't we? Um, oftentimes, um, we have the scars, but we also carry with us the unforgiveness of those scars, and sometimes it's hard for us to get past those scars, and the way that we get past those scars is by forgiving the one who caused them. And sometimes the person who caused them um, might even be yourself. <laughs> they might be, that's, uh, can I get an amen? Absolutely. Um, they're self-inflicted. But then there's other times where someone has wronged us, and it's just very, very difficult for us to get past that. And there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to do that song uh, and why we are having communion at the end. Number one is no matter what scar you are carrying with you, whether you've forgiven the person of it or given, maybe you created a scar in someone else's life uh, and, and you need that forgiveness. But one of these days, uh, we're not going to have to worry about scars when we get to heaven uh, because Jesus is going to wipe all of those things away. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. And uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Give him a praise. And we are, uh, we're going to take communion at the end uh, today because the sermon is, is also going to serve as kind of a communion meditation uh, because I think in, in order for us to forgive people the way that we need to forgive, uh, we need to consider regularly what Jesus did for us at Calvary. We need to remember that probably nobody in the history of the world, ever suffered more than Jesus did, yet nobody ever responded with more grace than Jesus did. So in the first part of this message, I want us to just think about the abuse that Jesus experienced during the final hours of his life. The first thing that we see, if we look through all of the Gospels and we see the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, one of the first things that we see is that he was the victim of disloyalty from his friends. Can anybody relate to that? Certainly. We've had friends who, who've let us down. Jesus has been there. When he was arrested, the Bible tells us that all of his friends forsook him, leaving Jesus to face the heaviness of the cross all by himself, and not just the cross, but all of the things that were leading up to the cross. He was dealing with those things by himself. Judas was a guy that Jesus discipled for three years, and he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I did some math. I googled, so I, it's a little bit dangerous, the information that I found here, but I think it's accurate. The cost for 30 pieces of silver today is probably somewhere between 90 and 400 bucks, all right? So it's kind of all over the place. But think about this. Judas betrayed one of his best friends, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He betrayed him for 90 to 400 bucks, somewhere in that ballpark. Simon Peter denied three times that he ever knew Jesus. You think about how close Simon Peter was to Jesus. He denied three times. In his most crucial hour, Simon Peter turned his back on his friend. Jesus was the victim of rank injustice in the courts of that day. When you look at the four Gospels, you discover that Jesus actually went through six different trials that night. He went through three before the Jewish authorities, and he went to three trials before the Roman authorities, and each of them was an outlandish fraud. He was taken in the middle of the night to the home of Annas, who was the 
uh, high priest emeritus, if you will, and he was uh, in this brief trial, which was basically just a formality. They'd already decided what they wanted to do with Jesus, so they thought, well, you know, to make it look good, we need to have this trial, and so they took him there, and then uh, they ushered him just down the street to Caiaphas, who was the acknowledged high priest, so we've got Annas, who was the high priest emeritus, we've got uh, Caiaphas, who's the, basically the son-in-law of Annas, and he is the acting high priest, and there, Jesus was accused of blasphemy, and that was a capital offense under Jewish law. And so, if you're found guilty of this, you're, you're doomed to die. At dawn, they assembled the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and they pronounced the official verdict of guilty, and then they hastily called a meeting early in the morning, and that was the third trial. But since Palestine was under Roman rule, the Jews did not have permission to execute anyone, so, so then they got to have a different kind of trial, right? And so approximately 6.30 in the morning, they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor, so not only could they find him guilty under Jewish law, they could find him guilty under Roman law as well, and they changed, get this, they changed the accusation from blasphemy, which is what they needed to have the uh, accusation to be to get him guilty under Jewish law, they changed it to treason, so that he would be found under uh, guilty under Roman law. And they said, this man's going around and he's stirring people up against Rome and he tells people not to pay their taxes and they tell people not to worship Caesar and he calls himself a king. And so they bring this accusation and after a brief interrogation, Pilate at least gave a little bit of fairness to this charade that they were calling in a trial. And he says, I don't find any fault in him. But the people insisted. And they said, hey, he stirs up trouble against all kinds of people all over Judea. He's stirring up trouble. He started in Galilee. He's worked his way here. And then when Pilate learned that he was a Galilean, he tried to get off the hook by sending Jesus to Herod, who was in charge of that particular region, to try him. But when Jesus just stood there and he was unresponsive to Herod, Herod passed the buck right back to Pilate the final trial. Now, it, trial. it was Pilate's job to try to keep peace in Judea, and he knew if there was more uprising that was going to take place, he's probably going to lose his job. But at the other hand, he, he didn't want to execute an innocent person, partly because his wife said, hey, I had a dream about this Jesus guy, and you need to steer clear of it. And so he listened to his wife, men. <clears throat> he listened to his wife. I've done that on occasion. <clears throat> right? So Pilate tried every way possible to wash his hands of the situation, but the Bible says with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate said, let him be crucified. Can you imagine 60 minutes diving into this trial and how they would have just had a field day with all of the injustices of, of the day, right? So many laws were broken by those who vowed to uphold the law. The Jewish court, it was their custom. They never met at night. It was against the law to meet at night. They have a trial at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, to me, that's night. To some of y'all, it might not be. But that's three. to me, that's night, you know? And they were never to find anybody guilty of a capital offense without two confirming witnesses. They had false witnesses, and these false witnesses contradicted one another. The high priest was to remain neutral, but Caiaphas was the first one to pronounce him guilty, and he's supposed to be neutral in the whole thing, right? 
And he says, oh, I need you all to just confirm this verdict. And then the way that they voted, the way they would do this is they would start with the younger ones first, the younger ones would vote, and then they would progressively vote with each older one going up. That way the younger ones were not influenced by the older ones. Does that make sense? Because if the older ones are saying, yeah, he's guilty, the younger ones are going to look at him, well, yeah, he's probably guilty. So they start with the younger one, and then they ask each of them their vote, and then it would go up to, to the older one. But you know what they did? They simultaneously gave it the whole, hey, everybody in favor, yeah, crucify him, he's guilty, all together. They voted simultaneously by consent. And they were not to pronounce the death of anyone, the death sentence of anyone, without a two-day waiting period. And during that two-day waiting period, the Talmud specified that the judges are to eat light food and drink light wine and sleep well before coming to an agreement to execute. They didn't even attempt to carry that out. At the Roman trial, the judge pronounced him innocent, but permitted to have him executed just to appease the anger of the people. So Jesus had friends that let him down. The court system let him down. You read through the four Gospels about the trial and the death of Jesus, and you look at some of the physical and the verbal abuse that Jesus took at the hands of his enemies. Listen to some of the things that the Bible says they did. They bound him. They sneered at him. They hurled insults at him. They testified against him falsely. And their statements didn't even agree. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. They beat him. They accused him of many things. They ridiculed and mocked him. They struck him in the face. They went up to him again and again and time and time again and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. See, they're, they're calling him the King of the Jews. They didn't recognize him as that. They're mocking him. And then the Bible says they crucified him. Now today, if someone is executed, we, we've come up with the most humane way as possible to execute someone, don't we? It's the electric chair or lethal injection, something that's just going to be over just like that. But the Romans devised crucifixion to torture someone for a prolonged period of time before they die. The Bible says that Jesus experienced that cruelty for six hours. And if that were not enough, his enemies gloated over his death. They're standing beneath the cross, and they're taunting him. Matthew's gospel says that when people passed by, they hurled insults at him, and they shook their heads saying, you who are going to destroy this temple and build it again in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. i got to admit, when I get verbally ridiculed, I don't always handle that the best. Is anybody with me on that? You know, and as, as a leader in the church, sometimes I get those things. As a basketball official, I definitely get those things. But there have been times when accusations have been made against me, um, accusations against the church, accusations against our school. I know Kendall got lit up a couple of years ago by some things that weren't even true, but people just ran with it and it got real crazy. And it strikes a nerve when that happens. Now, I know I shouldn't respond in anger, but that's not always easy to do, is it? The Apostle Paul, one time he got so angry, he called somebody a cretin. <gasps> 
uh, it might not seem like all that big a deal, but that's a, in th- that day and age, that's about as close as you can come to swearing without swearing for a Christian is to call someone a Cretan. So if somebody really makes you mad, just call them a Cretan, right? And then they'll look at you like, what, what are you even talking about? But you've got to admire Jesus. You just have to admire Jesus. He's so much better than we are. That he could be on the cross and these religious leaders are gloating over his death and he doesn't even respond. Matthew's gospel says the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, they all mocked him and they said, he saved others. Why can't he come down from the cross and save himself? He's the king of Israel. Whatever he says goes, let him come down. Demand them to take him down. He trusts in God. Let God. He even claims to be the son of God. And God would never allow his son to go through what he's going through. So save himself. Come down from that cross. In the same way the Bible says the robbers who were crucified on either side of him were hurling insults at him as well. I don't know of anybody in all of human history who received the treatment that Jesus did. But look at the grace that he displays in response to the cruelties of this people. From the very beginning, Jesus could have done several things. All right, when the soldiers come to arrest him, and they said, Where, you know, which, where, where's Jesus? And he said, I am he. And they fell back in fear, the Bible says. You know, Jesus could have supernaturally just walked right through them, and they couldn't have laid a hand on him, but he chose not time had come in the garden and he voluntarily surrendered to them and said this is your hour when darkness reigns when the soldiers first tied his hands and slapped him in the face now I don't know have you ever has anybody ever been slapped in the face all right I went on a ministry call one time I'm calling on someone in their house who was trying to take their own life did not know what they were doing And I tried to help them, and he slapped me in the face. That did not set well with me, right? If you've ever been slapped in the face, here's Jesus, the Son of God, who had every right to retaliate but chose not to. They bind his hands. They slap him in the face. Jesus could have called down legions of angels, the Bible said. Can't you just picture the angels in heaven? They're sitting on go. They're ready to go. All they're waiting for is God to say, all right, you go. In fact, they might even be begging God. They might be pleading with God, let us go. Let us go take care of it. When his enemies taunted him, and they said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and we will believe you. He could have yanked those nails out of his hands and come right down from the cross and said, how about this? What do you think of this? That's what I'd have done. I mean, he cursed a fig tree. He could have spoken to that cross and just deteriorated that. He spoke to a fig tree and it withered up. He could have done that to the cross, but he didn't. He's hanging there in humiliation, apparent defeat, and the first recorded words out of his mouth, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Have you ever sit back and said, yes, they did. They knew exactly what they were doing. They plotted it for weeks. 
But what Jesus meant was they didn't really understand who he was. They didn't really understand why he came. They didn't understand that the Messiah had to die for their sins and that he had to come back from the grave so that we could be raised to heaven and rule and reign with him forever. Because here's the deal. The prayer from the cross that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It wasn't just for the people of that day around the cross. It was for us too. It was for all of humanity, for all time. And so this prayer that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He knew that he was dying. He knew he was being crucified for an, as an atonement for our sins. And the Bible says what he was doing was he was reconciling us to him. God was reconciling us to him through Christ so that our sins wouldn't be counted against us. And the lesson that Jesus taught us is that we are not only free from sin, but we're free to follow his example. And that's the second part of this message I want to share with you. We need to look at Jesus, and we need to see how he responded, and we need to follow that example. So let's go, folks. Let's go forgive. Let's look at the life of Jesus, and let's forgive like Jesus has forgiven us. We talked about this in Sunday school the other day uh, when, when I uh, filled in for, uh, for Kendall or John one of, one of those days, and, and uh, we, we brought up the question, what if Jesus forgave us like we forgive others? In other words, yeah, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget it. Anybody ever said that? Aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't look at us and says, yeah, I went to the cross, I forgive you, but man, I'm not going to forget what you did. He didn't say that. The Bible says he casts our sins into the deepest sea. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them again. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 24 says. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness and by his wounds been healed. And so as we look at the cross of Jesus, I want to share three things with you very quickly. If you're a victim of cruelty, escape if possible and appropriate. You do not have to take the abuse before Jesus was crucified, there were some people in Nazareth who tried to kill him by throwing him over the uh, ledge of a cliff. You remember that story? And what did Jesus do? Well, his time hadn't come yet. He knew he had to go to the cross for our sins, and he, he escaped, right? Luke 4 says he, he just walked through, the, through their midst to safety. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You see, he agreed to endure the cross because it was unavoidable. And sometimes you cannot avoid being the victim of cruelty. Sometimes you're just there and you just have to stand and take it. But there are times when it is the Christian choice to get out of the situation and avoid it altogether. Remember the Lord told the wise men that King Herod had planned to kill the baby Jesus. Remember that story? They went home another way, right? 
Mary and Joseph, the Bible says they fled the city of Bethlehem. They didn't walk right back into the hostile, dangerous situation. They fled. And sometimes cruelty can be avoided. Now, that might mean you need to consider another job. Maybe a, a student, maybe as parents, maybe your student needs to consider another school. Maybe you need to consider taking a different route to your job or to the office. Maybe you participate in a different class. That might mean that if you're in a marriage and your spouse is continually physically and emotionally abusing you and your children, you don't have to stay in that. You separate. You try to work on that. You pray for, for the, the one who is the abuser and hope that they might repent and come around. But if you're the victory of cruelty, it might be the Christian thing to escape. You don't have to take it. When the enemies were searching the city of Damascus for Saul, you remember that story? Paul allowed himself to be lowered in a basket over the wall and escaped town. Now, the second lesson is this. If you're the victim of cruelty, don't retaliate. Jesus returned, or refused to return insult for insult. He refused to return blow for blow. He said to us, I tell you, do not resist uh, an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And I want to pause here for just a moment and add a little footnote. Turning the other cheek does not mean that you never administer justice. Right? Not retaliate doesn't mean that if there's a bad situation going on, or you shouldn't call the police. That's not, that's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean if someone's breaking into your house and you've got a nice little slugger laying up against the doorway, you can't use that, amen? I thought it'd be stronger than that. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, Mike, maybe that's not the right, <laughs> I don't know from a police standpoint. Sometimes you need to take legal action. Sometimes you need to take physical action to protect your home. In fact, Proverbs twenty four twenty five says, but it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come upon them. But when the attack is personal, when it's a personal insult, and it's not endangering other people, that one's hard. We are not to seek revenge. And that's really difficult because it's our, it's our human nature to get even, isn't it? It's so hard to turn the other cheek. A couple of years ago, someone told me they could tell that my sons got their looks from me. And then they proceeded to tell me that they knew that because their mother still had hers. Now, <laughs> I wanted to respond, uh, but I didn't. I couldn't think of anything to say. It was one of the few times in my life I'm like, I, they got me. I, I am speechless. I don't even know what to say. And they were, they were right, you know. Uh, but my instinct was to get back at them. You know, and the Bible says, as far as it depends on you, if it's possible, you live at peace with everyone. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Now, here's the third lesson. If you're the victim of cruelty, pray for those who abuse you. First thing that Jesus did on the cross was to pray for his tormentors. And this isn't always easy. But he says to us, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. When you pray for them, it makes it possible for the Spirit of God's power to be unleashed 
on that person to transform them. And it may just be that the person who is really cruel to you today by the power of the Holy Spirit might become one of your best friends. It's happened in my own life. I could tell you many stories of how that happened. Even if prayer doesn't change those who are cruel to you, it can change your attitude. And that's a good thing. It can change your attitude from bitterness to peace and give you the power to cope with whatever it is you're going through. Jesus said you pray for those who spitefully use you. Now here's the fourth lesson. If you're the victim of cruelty, forgive as quickly as possible. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, He forgave immediately, even while He was suffering abuse from His tormentors. And for most of us, since we are not divine, it's a little harder. This process takes some time. But we can immediately release our right to retaliate even though our sense of justice has been violated. We can choose whether we want to retaliate or not. We can pray immediately for that grace to forgive. Sister Helen Prejean in her book Dead Man Walking tells the story of Lloyd LeBlanc who was a Roman Catholic layman whose son was murdered. And he arrived at the field where his son's body lay because the sheriff had called him in to identify his son. And LeBlanc immediately knelt by his son's body and prayed the Lord's Prayer. And when he came to the part where it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He realized the depth of commitment that he was making with his son. He knew in his heart and in his mind, whoever did this, I have to forgive them. He later told Prejean, though it has been difficult not to be overcome by bitterness, and feelings of revenge, and let that well up in me from time to time, LeBlanc said that for each day, the rest of his life, forgiveness must be prayed for, struggled for, and won. We have to will to forgive. It's not an easy thing. It doesn't come natural. We have to work for it. But in our pride, we say, I'll never forgive. It's almost like we think we're punishing a person if we choose not to forgive them. You're only, you're only punishing yourself. Someone said resentment is does more damage to the container in which it's stored than the object on which it's poured. Forgive as quickly as possible. Fifth and finally, if you're the victim of cruelty, trust in God's care even though God might seem distant. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them and then not long after that he prayed my God my God why have you forsaken me but at the moment when Jesus felt forsaken it's when God was going to work right when he was forsaken when God had to turn his back on his one and only son because he couldn't stand the sight of sin it was at that moment that God was working to reconcile all of mankind back to him and so when it seems like God has forsaken you and he seems distant it might be that he's working something out that you don't even see coming I remember reading and hearing the story in the Old Testament that when Joseph was 
hated by his brothers and sold into slavery. And, and then his master's wife lied about him and accused, accused him of doing something he didn't do. And, and he's thrown into jail. And even the, the inmates in jail forgot about him. His whole life was just one bad thing after another. And the night before he was re released, not knowing he was going to be released, he could have prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he didn't. And at that moment, God was about to do something in his life that would change him forever. The very next day, he is placed as the number two man in all of Egypt, right beneath his family. There might be times in your life when you feel like God's not there. You might be going through a difficult time right now where you feel like God is distant. Maybe you're going through something where it feels like a lot of things are being unloaded on you right now and life's not fair and people are not treating you the way that you feel that you should be treated and you start to hold grudges against people. I encourage you to be faithful today. Even though God may seem distant, Jeremiah 15, 21 says, I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. Look at the cross for just a moment. There's something very powerful about that. That's why I don't understand churches that don't want to display a cross. I'll never get my mind wrapped around that. Because there is something so powerful about the cross that it melts the coldest heart. And today, we're going to sing a, a, an invitation song in a moment, but we're going we're gonna to take communion first. And I want you to think about, as our worship team comes to lead us um, in an invitation song and uh, in the communion song, so how this is going to work is uh, Sandy's just going to play the piano. I'm going to... I'm going to pray, and you, you take communion at your own, at your own time. And um, when we start singing, I'm going to ask you to stand, and maybe you have a decision that you need to make. Maybe it's a decision that, that you need to surrender your life to Jesus and be reconciled to God through what he, Jesus did for you on the cross. Maybe you need to confess him as the Christ and repent of your sins and be baptized into him. I think most people in this room have already made that decision. Man, what a great day last Sunday was for those six that made that decision. Can we just get a praise for that once again? I told, I told Kendall I'm going to have to stay away more often. Six people got baptized on the day I wasn't here. So. Um, but most people have already made that decision. But um, maybe you find yourself holding a grudge. Or maybe you find yourself harboring unforgiveness, bitterness in your heart towards someone. I'm going to encourage you during this time of communion, during this time of invitation, to let that go. To choose to will to forgive. And I think that whenever you allow that forgiveness to enter into your heart, there's going to be chains that break off of you that's been holding you bound for a long time. So I'm going to pray, and you take it your own leisure. And when we start singing, we encourage you to stand, and we encourage you to come if you have a decision you need to make. Let's bow.